seen the butler? A few? Okay. I just really want to encourage you to go see it when you have the opportunity. The storyline of this film is based loosely on the life of a man named Eugene Allen, a man who served as a butler in the White House for 34 years. His true story first came to light in a Washington Post article by Will Haygood back in 2008, about the time that Barack Obama first came into the presidency and started living in the White House. As a butler, Eugene Allen served eight different U.S. presidents, from Dwight David Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan between the years 1952 and 1986. Now, that's quite a span, quite a career. In the movie, Allen is portrayed uh, by uh, Forrest Whitaker. His name in the movie is Cecil Gaines, so kind of get that a name in your head, Cecil Gaines. His wife is Gloria, played by Oprah Winfrey. Their eldest son, Lewis, is played by David Olawo. And the acting is tremendous. The storyline is captivating. The butler begins in 1926 with the death of Cecil's father at the hands of the barbaric son of the elderly landowner of a Georgia cotton farm. Upon his father's death, the elderly landowner decides to take little Cecil into her home, where he first learns to be a butler and to serve others gracefully. This elderly landowner is played by Vanessa Redgrave, and she teaches Cecil to be a good butler, to serve well. She says things to him like this, you need to anticipate what people need. You need to anticipate what people want. Bring a smile to their faces by the way you serve them. She says, the room should be emptier when you are in it. <laughs> and she says that, that uh, she and all people have two faces. If you're a servant, you have a servant's face as well as your normal face, the one of service, the one uh, of your own feelings is set aside, denied, so that you can be the servant and you wear only your face of service. And as a servant, you hear nothing, you see nothing, you only serve words that echoed back to him as he began to work on staff at the White House. Well, when Cecil became a teenager, he ran away from the cotton farm and he found his way to Washington, D.C. It was the Great Depression, so he nearly starved to death before he found a job. Eventually, he got a job working at the Excelsior Hotel in Washington, D.C., where he was noticed as an exceptional server by an official from the White House who was there in the bar. And this White House person told the staff they hired him as a butler in the White House, according to the movie. America was going through great turmoil at the time. Ninety years after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, racial inequality was still everywhere. Segregation of whites and blacks was the norm, and great injustices occurred fairly regularly. From many perspectives, America was still a white man's world. During Cecil Gaines' tenure as butler, JFK was assassinated in Dallas. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in Memphis. Bobby Kennedy was killed in California as he ran for president. The Vietnam War began and ended after many bloody years, while Gaines was serving at the president's side every day. During all of this time, he continued to serve with humility and dignity. In the movie... 
Gaines Observe, Dwight David Eisenhower grappling with school desegregation, Lyndon Johnson preparing to sign the 1965 Voting Rights Act, Richard Nixon plotting violence against the Black Panthers right at a time when Butler's, the Butler's son had decided to join them, Ronald Reagan vetoing sanctions against South Africa's apartheid regime. In August of 1955, Near the beginning of Gaines' career as the butler, Mamie Till's 14-year-old son, Emmett, was killed by two white men in Mississippi simply because they thought he looked in an appropriate way at a white woman. His brutal death and the subsequent farce of a trial in which the murders were acquitted by an all-white jury ignited the African-American civil rights movement. About that time, the butler's son, Lewis, was heading off to college in Tennessee at Fisk University. Lewis couldn't get Emmett's tragic death and Mamie Till's inspiring words out of his head. And so he determined as a college student he was going to become part of this new civil rights movement so that they could promote change in America. No longer did they want things like Emmett Till's murder to happen in our land. But Cecil, as the butler, discouraged his son from getting involved. He said, nothing good can come from what you were doing. And so for a long time, he and his son, Lewis, were at odds. They didn't even speak to one another for years. Lewis continued to become more involved in the civil rights movement, participating in the Freedom Ride and in sit-ins and picketing and demonstrations and marches. And he was arrested over 20 times. Cecil and his wife, Gloria, were scared to death that their son would be killed by the races. And meanwhile, his father, year after year, continued serving white people in the White House as a butler. Now, it may be hard for you young people today, uh, teenagers especially, but even young adults, to appreciate how deep the strains of racial hatred ran in our country at that time. But let me assure you, they did. People were willing to kill one another because of their prejudices and their biases and their racism. It was a very, very difficult time. Changes were gradually coming to America, but it was taking a long, long time. People in the South especially fought desegregation. And in the movie, it brings out that when President Eisenhower ordered the National Guard into Little Rock, Arkansas, to, to protect the black children as they went to the newly integrated schools, Cecil said, that was the first time I ever saw a white man stick his neck out for us. As I watched the movie, I liked a speech Lewis heard at Fisk University the first time he was receiving training by the civil rights movement leaders. The organizer of this nonviolent approach to social change said, we only have one weapon, the weapon of love. We refuse to use any other weapon, even if they come after us with sticks or guns or ropes. And as the civil rights movement continued, Lewis continued to take many risks in order to bring change to America, risking his own life multiple times. Cecil and his wife, however, just wanted him to come home where he could be safe. When Lewis's little brother, Charlie, is killed fighting for his country in Vietnam, Lewis fails to show up for his funeral. And for a long time, the father refuses to forgive him for that. Later, however, much later, when Cecil was going through an old box of pictures and books and things that belonged to his politically active son, it suddenly hit him. Lewis 
wasn't the criminal he had imagined him to be. He wasn't a criminal for his sit-ins, the freedom ride, the demonstrations and the marches. No, he now decided Lewis was a hero, a hero fighting to save the soul of his country. He always chose the path of peaceful resistance in order to change the hearts of those who hated him. In Matthew 5, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, Jesus said, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Dr. Luke records words similar to this of Jesus, maybe at the same time, maybe at a different sermon. In Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 27, he says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Love your enemies. Do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Remember those words coming back to me even as I was watching the movie because they had had chosen to go into a diner and to sit down in the white people's section. There was a colored people's section and a white people's section. And they, they went over and sat down at the counter there, a group of them, mostly black students, one white student with them, and just waited to be served. Well, they refused to serve them. And pretty soon a crowd had formed. Pretty soon they were squirting the ketchup and mustard all over them and mistreating them and slapping them and finally they pulled them off and, and a, a kind of a fight erupted but they, they didn't fight back and pretty soon they were arrested and taken to jail and I remember Jesus' words love your enemies bless those who curse you pray for those who mistreat you if someone strikes you on the cheek turn to him the other also we need to understand God's attitude God's attitude, particularly towards those who are his enemies. We need to understand that our Father in heaven has a very different attitude than we may may feel naturally rising within us, and certainly different than the attitude we see in the world. God loves people. Bottom line, God loves people. He loves all of us, no matter who we are. We are made in his image, and he loves each of us in spite of us. He loves white people. He loves black people. He loves Asians. He loves Latinos. He loves Americans. He loves Russians. He loves Syrians. He loves Afghanis. He loves the British. He loves the Taliban. It sounds crazy, but God loves all of us. Somehow he reaches out to all of us of all nationalities, of all ethnicities, of all people groups with that same love. He loves those living at a poverty level, and he loves those who are filthy rich, and he loves the rest of us who are in the middle class stuck between them. This does not mean that God likes everything people do. 
He doesn't like anything, everything that any of us do. But he loves us just the same. And he loves us in spite of us because he is our creator, our God, our father. He made us. And he gave us free will. He hopes that we will love him back. So God loves us. But there's a second thing we need to understand, how far this love will go. And that is that God longs to redeem people. He longs to bring people back to him who have, who have violated that relationship, who have rebelled against him, who have chosen a wicked path that is diametrically opposed to God's path. He wants to save them. He wants to save us from ourselves, from our disobedience, from our rebellion. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. God loves us and God longs to redeem us. God, our creator, who cannot possibly need anything. You know, God doesn't have any needs. But God has wants. And what he wants is for his children to know him and to love him. Love is only meaningful when it is chosen, when it can be chosen, when there is a possibility that the other person may choose not to love us. You know, a child can have a stuffed animal, and that stuffed animal is going to love him, her or him back because they tell it to, you know. You just hug them and they hug you back. It has no choice. It's a puppet. It's, it's a, a mandated by the owner that this is what you must do. But God took the risk of giving us free will and of saying, I love you, I will give my life for you, I want you back. But we have the choice, the option, not to love him in return. God longs to redeem his people, even though we've all chosen to leave him, to rebel against him, to disobey him. You see that no matter who we are, we all have sinned. Every person in this room has sinned. Every person has violated their relationship with God. Every person has, has committed grievous acts against our Creator God. And we've come up short of what God wants for us. We have all failed Him. There are no exceptions. But God wants to remedy that. He wants to set us free from our slavery to sin. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody to end up in hell. That's what Peter says. God doesn't want anybody to be punished forever, but if they insist upon it, it will happen because that's the way this world is set up. But God doesn't want that. He longs to redeem people. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.4, he says, God our Savior wants all men to be saved. This business about God predestined some for hell and some for heaven is hogwash because the scripture says that God longs for every person to be redeemed. God longs for every person to be saved. God wants that, but he gives the choice to the person to choose God or not. The epitome of God's love and God's desire to redeem people is Jesus, the Savior. Jesus came as the ultimate expression of God's love. There is no higher cost God could pay. I challenge you to think of someone or something more valuable than Jesus. And God said, I'm going to lay my son on the line. And when you see what he will do for you, what he will give for you, 
then you will choose love rather than hate. You will choose obedience rather than disobedience. You will choose to be in my family rather than rebel against me. God was willing to risk his very son in order to redeem us. He gave up his son so that the filthiest, most wicked person on earth could have the opportunity to be redeemed. So the question for this morning, really for us, seeing all this, knowing all this, is simply to ask this, do we love people the same way God does? Do we love people as God does? Do we love people of a different race or a different ethnicity? Do we truly love people who live a different lifestyle than ours? Do we take the time to love people whose values and goals don't match up at all with ours? Go down the street and you see somebody that is so, just on the surface, so vastly different than us. Does your heart long to get to know them and to express God's love to them or are you repulsed? Are you... Are you the person that gets away as fast as you can? Because God's attitude is to be drawn to that person. God's attitude is to love them. Do we love people the way God loves people? And secondly, do we long to see them redeemed the way God longs to redeem them? Does it keep us awake at night hoping that our neighbor will come to Jesus? Does this passion drive what we do every day as we relate to our fellow student or to our coworker or to our family member that doesn't know the Lord yet? I don't think so. Do you? I don't think that's how it works for most of us. I know that in my life as a preacher even, I get so busy with the people that I already know, especially people who are, who are, are like me people that I've already got a relationship with, people who have needs within the congregation, people that that I'm already friendly with, that I rarely think about those people that God's thinking about all the time. He can't get them off his mind. Rare is it that we make time for people that we don't already know. But God, God is always concerned about that, that person that doesn't know him yet. God is always out there searching for lost sheep who need to be rescued. His heart beats for them as well as for us. We're already in his household. We're already part of his family. But he keeps thinking about the people that didn't get there yet. He keeps thinking about the people that are still struggling and battling against life and caught up in sin and and living this lifestyle far away from God. And they are constantly on his heart. Are they on our hearts? Do you remember Jeffrey Dahmer? Do you remember the horrific crimes that he was guilty of? Dismembered people, killed people. It went on for years. He's totally given over to the most wicked kind of lifestyle you could imagine. He was caught, convicted, and in prison, somebody told him about Jesus. And Jeffrey Dahmer became a follower of Christ. He was forgiven. Now, we'd have a hard time forgiving him, but God didn't. Because God loves people and God longs to redeem people. Do you remember Manuel Noriega? Do you remember the crimes he was guilty of as a dictator of a country and selling drugs and making himself filthy rich and the, the, the uh, wickedness and the violence of his, his regime and the people that were killed, the people that were hurt? 
and he just kept getting richer and richer. He was caught. He was convicted. And in prison, somebody, a Church of Christ minister, talked to him about Jesus. And Manuel Noriega became a follower of Jesus. He was forgiven. God reached out to him. One of the most wicked people that ever lived. You see, God didn't give up on Jeffrey Dahmer. God didn't give up on Manuel Noriega. And God didn't give up on you or me. Because he loves us and because he longs to redeem us. In his sermon called Loving Your Enemies, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, there is a final reason I think that Jesus said love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them and they just can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with guilt feelings and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But you just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's the love you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There is something about love that builds up and is creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So Jesus says, love your enemies. As King said elsewhere, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. The butler, Cecil Gaines, served eight U.S. presidents with humility and respect and prayed that change would come to America. His son, Lewis, risked his life in peaceful protest so that those who hated and persecuted him would open their hearts and be changed by love. Jesus challenged the hateful, wicked people and systems of his day by loving and by praying for his enemies and his persecutors. And even as he hung on the cross, you know what he prayed. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He told us, he told his followers that we need to be willing to love and to pray for our persecutors as well. He said, love your enemies. Be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you would open our hearts so that we might acknowledge the attitudes we have that are still failed and failing, attitudes of uh, unforgiveness, attitudes of fear, of ignorance, of prejudice. Lord, we acknowledge that there is much we need to learn from you. And when Jesus commands us to love our enemies... We can do that at arm's length, but when you get up close and personal, it's not so easy. Lord, help us to see people through your eyes. Help us to hear them, to get to know them, to try to understand their lives and the choices that they've made up to this point. Help us, Lord, to come alongside them, to serve them, humility and grace as the butler served. Help us to not be always pushing our ideas, our agenda, our views, but help us to serve in such a way that the room would be emptier when we are in it. What a, what a, a picture of the place we have. 
even of the role that Jesus had. The Son of God came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we love as you love. May we long to see people redeemed as you long to redeem them. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.